We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go and by what route and how fast. Almost all the world's constitutions are documents in which governments tell the people what their privileges are. Our constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free. You're listening to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, 89.3 Lake of the Ozarks. And now, here's your host, Brett Sterling. Welcome back, everybody. And we are here, as promised, with uh, Senator Cindy Laughlin from Missouri's 18th uh, Senate District. So from our from our previous conversation, kind of sounds like it's an instance where the job kind of found you instead of you going out looking for the job. Well, truthfully, I, tr- I went around the district trying to find someone else to do it. And I couldn't, I couldn't find anyone to do it. So then finally I thought, well, I'll do it. Even though I knew how frustrating it would be and, and it is. So, you know, (laughs) it's not something that you get up every day and think, gee, I'm glad I did this. (laughs) (laughs) What are a couple of things that you have learned in your, in your first term about the way state government, maybe the legislature functions or, or doesn't function? I think that there's too much uh, grandstanding. If we make a decision in our company, we, we implement it, and that's the end of it. And we're responsible for the results. Now, government and trying to govern, it, that's a, a totally different type of situation. So, you know, it's like everyone is owner. And so you really can't advance something unless you get some type of consensus. And I get a little bit worn out with the grandstanding. In other words, people who are willing to sponsor something, knowing it has virtually zero chance of going anywhere, but then they can go home and say, hey, I sponsored this for you. If you're going to govern in a responsible fashion, I believe that you have to look at the situation, come up with what you think is a solution. Then you have to work hard to try to get consensus. And you also have to go out and listen to the people and hear from them when you say, hey, I think this might be a solution for this problem. How will this work for you? And I think that's really a missing link in the whole uh, picture because sometimes a great idea turns out to not be a great idea. So that's frustrating. The fact that our state government is really not accountable. And when I say that, I mean, we're spending $32 billion and there's no measurables um, identified. There's no, okay, this is the direction we want you to go. This is what we expect you to accomplish. These are the dates that we're going to check back and see if anything's been done that helps us get to these goals. There's none of that. It's just kind of a gigantic social experiment with billions of dollars. And, you know, if you, if you can't identify where you're going, how will you know when you get there? I, I really feel that we need um, a radical transformation of government. 
if we were living in a perfect world, which we are not, but I really feel that number one, I think there should be an audit of every single government department. I'm pretty big on looking at details and looking into something. You know, if someone tells me something, I don't just say, oh, okay, I accept that as fact. Um, That's not what we do in our business. And I know that doesn't work. And so then I try to go and figure out, all right, is there any truth to this? How did this happen? What's involved? And what I'm finding is there's a lot of inefficiency. There's a lot of waste. There's a lot of um, statute that's ignored and This happens because no one's asking for results. No one's measuring what's happening. Therefore, we end up with the taxpayer being continually taxed and asked for more to accomplish something. It's just like a giant money laundering (laughs) machine. (laughs) It's not accomplishing really much of anything that's good. So it, it isn't really the fault of everyone within the government. It's the fault of the people who set it up and who should be monitoring it. There's no monitoring. There's no expectation set. So, you know, if you're going to hand over $32 billion and you're going to hand it to a great big bureaucracy and you expect that something great's going to come out of that for the taxpayer, you're really going to be disappointed. Kind of what kind of what you're saying is just because one of the uh, quote unquote experts say something is true, we're, we don't need to take that at face value. It, it's actually reasonable to ask questions. I wanted to kind of move on just uh, with with you. I mean, you were you were several hats, your wife, mother, grandmother, uh, dog mom. I, 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 I love watching your pictures, your bassets. They're awesome. Uh, business owner and educator. And how, how do you and you kind of uh, touched on this, but how are those life experiences benefited you from in the Missouri legislature? My life at times is totally chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that has taught me to deal with life in the legislature because I think it's totally chaotic. For sure. Um, you know, I think I, I do have a tendency to take on too much. But right now, you know, we we really have sort of an avalanche of things that I think are heading the wrong direction. In turning to education, uh, you're you're the chairwoman of the Joint Committee on Education uh, in the legislature. Your committee has been faced with several unique challenges, uh, to say the least, over the past 18 or so months. How, How do you see the educational, the school year uh, shaping up as of now? I'm almost a libertarian when you really get down to the definition. And I think what's happened with the COVID situation and the government-driven hysteria, I'm not trying to say that it doesn't exist. I'm not trying to say that, you know, it can't be something very, very serious for different individuals when you come to the school I think we've seen and have been told that children basically are at zero risk of becoming seriously ill from it. And yet what what I see happening, what happened last year with school shut down and kids supposedly going to learn online, which turned out to be a massive failure by just about anybody's measurement. 
Um, now schools are dealing with, you know, a new variant and what do we do about that? And some of them want to mandate that your children should always have a mask on, which I'm absolutely opposed to because I return to what I said at the beginning of this question. Children have zero percent risk of becoming seriously ill and children's mental health and their ability to learn when they are uh, wearing a face mask all day long, you know, it's affecting them severely. And depending on how big your local government is in your health department, or depending on the political leanings of your school, you might find yourself in a situation where your children or grandchildren are being mandated to wear a mask. And then, you know, there's quite a lot of pushback over that, as there should be. And I think that our our school year is at risk of being totally disrupted again by people who are using COVID for political gain. I mean, yeah. if you're an adult... With any kind of vulnerability, um, you have the ability to make the decision for yourself to be vaccinated or not, to wear a mask or not, to do whatever you need to do to keep yourself safe. And I'm fine with that. But children should not be bearing the brunt of this, what has now become a gigantic political tug of war. And I'm afraid that's going to happen and seems to be happening in some areas. It does seem that way. And I mean, the, the politicization of the, of the pandemic has, has just polarized society so much. And if you do just look at, you know, numbers don't lie, but people lie about numbers. If you just look at this, at the data, they support exactly what you're saying is that children, especially under 18, are at l- virtually no risk of COVID-19 or having any type of uh, any type of symptoms, much less fatalities, although there ha- obviously have been some. It's It's been relatively low and every, any loss of life is, is tragic for sure. But if you look at the psychological and the social effects of masking and not being in, uh, seated in school last year, you know, that's just taken a tremendous toll on especially adolescents and, and school-age kids. I mean, how can we recover from the damage that, that this year of isolation and fear and reduction of social interaction has, has caused our children? Well, it's going to be difficult. And, you know, I recently attended a meeting in Springfield where I said, I believe we need a change in leadership at the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. This is not due to any personal animus toward anyone there. But um, that department communicates with all the schools, though they do say they're not responsible for anything the schools do and they have no authority over anything the schools do, which kind of, you know, begs the question, well, then why do we need you? Why do we have a multi-million dollar department that has no responsibility and no authority? That doesn't make sense to me, number one. I think parents have to get engaged and they are getting engaged in, you know, some pretty large numbers. And I think that will continue to grow. And ultimately, you know, we do need a good public school system. There's always going to be public school. We need to stand up for what's right in the school. And we need to take the authority back to the parents. We need a lot more transparency in our school boards and our administrations. And in some schools, it works perfectly. But in many schools, it does not. And so, I think that's something that we can work with in the legislature. And um, 
I think the, the key is parents have to be involved and they have to be informed. And last year, if COVID did anything, it informed parents because they started seeing what their children were being taught yes. and they they didn't like it in some cases. And as I've gone around and talked to concerned parent groups, I, you know, cite the fact that nationally speaking, the results in Missouri have been going downhill for the last few years. And if you can comparing Missouri to other states, and if you look at some of the surveys that have been done nationally, you see that young adults think socialism is a good idea. Well, where did they come to that conclusion? It had to have come from the school. Absolutely. You know, what we have sort of, um, not sort of, we have a situation where capitalism and our country, in my mind, being the greatest country on earth, capitalism affords opportunity to all of us. And that's why people want to come to America. And rather than emphasizing that, uh, you know, we're, we're teaching our kids that socialism is a good thing. So we've kind of gone off the rail in that respect. School exists to, um, to, to serve the student and to provide a student with an education that prepares themselves for life in general and to be a successful contributing citizen to society. And we're obviously not doing that. You know, our, our entire um, objective ought to be to provide a, an environment where kids learn to be able to think critically um, and so that they become independent and can live a successful life independent of government. And instead uh, we're turning out young people who seem to be perennially juvenile, um, unable to uh, hear something that maybe doesn't agree with their point of view, and they don't even know how to process that kind of thing, which we saw when people started demanding they, they had to have a safe space. I mean, my goodness, where where did... Where did that idea even come from? And much of that is pushed through the school. Here's a good example. A small school about 15 miles from my hometown, which is a very small town. I was there visiting the school and I said, you know, we need to stabilize our family structure and make strong families again. Because if you have a strong family, you have a strong state and a strong country. I said to a local school administrator, You know, we need to stabilize our families. We need to start talking about how important it is to have strong families. So maybe we could hang a poster on the wall showing a family eating dinner together. No words, nothing like that, just showing that picture. And the response was, well, that would be a good way to get sued. You know, what you hear from schools commonly is, well, we can't do that because we'll get sued. So, you know, they can turn men into women's bathrooms. They can do all of these things that are absolutely against everything that we have known and believed. And we're all supposed to just accept that. But when we try to return to any kind of normalcy, we're told, oh, we can't do that because we're going to get sued. You know, this is how far public education has gone downhill. You're seeing you're seeing that now. And this has kind of all set the stage for the introduction of the critical race theory. I know it's being taught here in Springfield public schools. And I, I don't know of anybody, any opponent of critical race theory who is opposed to having our full, truthful history, good, bad, ugly, and really ugly taught. I mean, are, are you aware of that? 
I haven't no, heard anybody. No, and you know, there's no evidence of that. So when I have people say to me, well, you know, we just need to, to teach history in a truthful manner, then I say, do you have evidence that it's not taught in a truthful manner? I mean, the whole sure. premise of this is that our country is uh, consumed with white privilege and that any advance that has been made has only been for white people. I mean, this is obviously not true. We had an African-American president for eight years. You know, how did that happen? It's very divisive and um, it's hateful and it's wrong. Now, I did just have a meeting with two state board of education members who gave me, I don't know, their version of, well, listen, when we're talking about critical race theory, uh, there's a lot of different definitions and here's some different things you need to think about. And there was some validity to what they said, but that's not what's being taught in schools, which I have proof of and have given them. You know, on the one hand, we're, we're being told, listen, this is just to be sure that history is, is taught in a correct way. And, you know, my response still is, do you have evidence that it's not being taught in a correct way? I have no evidence of that. Absolutely. I mean, for I mean, for instance, I mean, proponents of critical race theory, when you when you read the actual main proponents of it, they reject the civil rights movement. They reject Martin Luther King Jr. They reject all this. Is that real history? That's not real history. I mean, these were legitimate political ground shifts that uh, positively influence society. You know, you get some of this pushback and it's kind of interesting to see how you know, advocates for CRT, you know, react when they receive pushbacks. And especially like if you go to school board meetings, I mean, parents' microphones are cut off early, you know, opponents are called uninformed or that they have some kind of uh, conspiracy theory. I did, I did see a funny uh, thing on uh, social media the other day. It said that, that Noah was a conspiracy theorist until it started raining, you know, after, yeah. after he started raining, you know, he looked like he was you know, pretty prescient. So as you said, liberty loving individuals really in, in parents and community members, I mean, we, we have to be active and continue to push back, don't we? Absolutely. And I think parents, parents have thought school was going in a direction that it turns out it wasn't. And they thought things were being taught in the way that they were taught when they were younger. And it's not. CRT is a Marxist ideology. I don't care what kind of bow someone wants to put on it and say, no, this is a perfectly good thing. No, it's not. We're not sending our children to school to be political activists. And that's what it's turning into. And something which is really added to that is the technology tie. We frequently read that kids are too connected to electronics, that they can't make eye contact with people, that, you know, they can't communicate. And then on the other other hand, often when I walk into a school, one of the first things I hear is we're one to one now, meaning every child has a tablet. So I think technology obviously has its use in society, but there is far too much reliance on it today. And it's in the classroom. It has taken the place of textbooks in a lot of situations. So parents really don't even know what their children are being taught. And I, I'm, I'm opposed to that. Yeah. Parental, parental involvement, I think at, at every level is, is important. I, I mean, honestly, to this point, we've largely failed in that. So, but I have to believe it's Absolutely. not too late. Well, I mean, that's really what drives me. I've, I've lived the biggest part of my life, but I have children and I have grandchildren. And 
I'm very alarmed at what the future holds for my children and grandchildren, considering what government has wrought. And it's time to say it's far past time, actually, to say this is enough. We, we're not doing this and we're, we need to turn this back. And it's going to be very hard. It sure is. We're going into a lot of headwinds. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's all our responsibilities to to be self-governing citizens and to be involved in the political process, the educational process. Fostering a society of self-governance is one of the goals of the Convention of States Project, because we're not going to be able to take back our society and, and be prosperous, freedom-loving people if if we're not involved. You voted for Senate Concurrent Resolution 4 uh, this last session, which is the Convention of States Project's Article 5 resolution. And thank you for your support appreciate that very much. And this kind of dovetails with your focus on grassroots involvement and kind of a bottom-up form of political leadership, does it not? Absolutely. I mean, you know, over the years, I've had people say to me, I think that's a dangerous thing to open that up uh, with a convention of states. And, you know, in the beginning, I, I thought that I understood that fear. But look at what's happening in this country. I'm a lot more afraid of what's going to happen if <laughs> if we don't take control. You know, I think I think it has to happen. It seems like the Constitution has been thrown overboard and every um, fail safe check that we used to have, the checks and balances, they've been thrown overboard. And it's just turning into uh, we're going to tell you what you're going to do and you're going to do it. To your point, I mean, we're, we're largely governed by court cases. <laughs> That's kind of where we are today is when you look at some of the court cases, I mean, the Supreme Court upheld segregation. They upheld internment of of Japanese Americans in internment camps. There have been horrific court cases. So that tendency to look to the Supreme Court or our court system as as a beat all end all, that is completely misguided and is completely at odds. And a lot of the reasons why we are where we are is because we become unmoored from the Constitution, our constitutional principles. Absolutely. I mean, look at um, Obamacare. When that went to the Supreme Court, I thought, well, they're going to say that this is a tax and this is going to nullify this. And they didn't do it. We don't have the protections of the Constitution. And largely, we have a lot of people who don't even know what those are. So if you want to see what a, what a bunch of lawyers can do, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> not to trash all lawyers, you know, we've got a whole lot of lawyers in the legislature. And I, I think that we need to have more people who have actually had to go out, make something work. They've had to work, you know, not not work through words, but actually do something that is productive. And a lot of lawyers uh, make a living on creating dysfunction (laughs) because when you have dysfunction, then you need more lawyers. (laughs) Sure. Well, if you write the law is complicated enough, then you need more lawyers to explain what the law means. And then so, yeah, it's kind of guaranteed job security right there. And again, again, not to not to beat up on lawyers, but no, I can I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon us to use every tool we have in the toolbox and one of, the, one of the tools in the Constitution is the ability to for state legislators to meet in a constitutional venue and discuss proposals to amend the Constitution to limit the overreach that we're seeing from government. And whenever I go to the legislature, I talk to whoever it is. It doesn't matter what, what area that they represent or what districts they represent. You know, Senator, I think that you know better what the 18th Senate District needs in Missouri 
than a federal bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. or anyone in Congress because you live in that district. You're connected to that district. You know, your constituents can come and meet with you in Jefferson City. I mean, I can't I can't go and meet with my legislators in, in Washington, D.C., but I and can. they're not going to come and meet with you either. They're not. No. And, and absolutely. And the framers of the Constitution never envisioned career politicians. They never envisioned all the action being in Washington, D.C. It was all kept to the states. You know, it's gotten to the point where everyone hates politics, no matter who they are, no matter where they're at or what side they're, they see themselves being on. And, uh, you know, I feel kind of the same way. My four sons used to say, we don't want anything to do with that. Don't be talking about it. We're tired of hearing about it. And I said, okay, that's fine. But one day you're going to realize that politics is running your life. Well, now they're all adults and now they understand it. And Mm -hmm. it's just out of hand. That's where we're at. I mean, the federal government is immense and Congress has abdicated its responsibility. So they pass laws that are, you know, thousands of pages long. They don't know what's in it. And then they send it off to a bureaucracy to interpret and implement. And they, of course, start with their number one objective, which is to make their job indispensable. That's where we're at. Sadly, we've reached the end of our time here, and it's really been a pleasure speaking with you, Senator, and really appreciate, you know, your your leadership, your service to the 18th District, and for all Missourians in, in pushing back against the non-functioning portions of our state and federal government. So we, we all uh, really appreciate your service there, and thank you for uh, being here with us on Freedom's Call. Thank you for having me on. Have a nice day. You've been listening to Freedom's Call with your host, Brett Sterling. If you'd like to interact with the show, send us an email to freedomscall89.3 at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Convention of States movement and how you can join our fight to restore the Constitution and preserve democracy, visit conventionofstates.com. Join us again next week at this same time for Freedom's Call. Guilty pain, still